My wife is a runner, and I am not. Uh, my, a friend of my wife comes over like multiple times a week, and they just go off for a 16K run. It's like their routine. I, I like to think of them as they're always half marathon ready. Like that's just, that's just their baseline. It's just constantly going for these long runs. For myself, I, I don't have what it takes to be a runner because without fail, the rare occasion that I do go out for a run, I'm like two kilometers in and just, it's a mental game at that point where I'm just like, why am I doing this? And the battle inside is legs keep moving and my mind is saying, I can think of anything but this that I'd like to be doing right now, you know? And so that's always the tension. But I have a lot of respect for the runners in the church. We've got a lot of them. I know a lot of you run, a lot of you cycle, and I do have respect for uh, your ability to train because there's this discipline you have. You seem to win the battle of the mind when you're mid-cycle or run, and I'm very impressed with that. So there's this training, this discipline in you, and I think ultimately over it all, there's this perspective you have that this is good for me, that reaching that goal is a great thing, and I will experience satisfaction upon it. It's good for my body to regularly do these things. You just have that perspective that wins out that I lack. You know, and, and so I respect that about you. Um, but in our uh, series this summer, we're going through in Philippians, we're in the latter few verses of Philippians chapter three. And, and Paul, I, I've struggled to approach how to preach this this morning because he just sort of blasts like nine things into these few verses. And it's like, what do I do with all of that? But, but I think the common thread in it is this, this proper perspective in the Christian life, that he's, he's just sort of flooding in. He's not speaking exhaustively here, but he's speaking to a, a number of critical components uh, of the Christian life and the perspective we should have. And he speaks about it in this sort of past, present, and future way. So let me read it to you. I think you'll see it, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll tackle it together. Philippians 3, starting in verse 12, it says, not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, I'm right and you'll come around. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, he says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often have often told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our outline this morning will we'll unpack like this. Your past is in the past. Your future is now. And thirdly, your future is secure. We want to take Paul's past, present, future uh, view as we uh, go about this text. The first thing he says is your past is in the past. Here's what he says. But one thing I do, I forgot to finish my mint before I came on here, sorry. It's gone. Okay. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. My boys and I really love like YouTube compilations. Is that what's called? Like just a mashup of all kinds of videos of essentially old school um, America's Funniest Home Videos. Somebody falling in a pool, a dad getting hit in the midsection with a kid's baseball bat, the classics, you know? And, and uh, there's this compilation that's called Try Not to Laugh. And it's just all kinds of footage that people have submitted. And you're supposed to try and stay with a straight face as all of these people are bailing and funny stuff's going on. And one of our favorites is, is the scenario where people are running in a race and the person in the lead either like looks back, which slows them down and somebody zips past and actually wins, or they make the mistake, rookie mistake, of celebrating too early. You ever seen those ones, a runner or a cyclist? They're waving their arms in the air. They're celebrating their victory before the finish line and somebody zips past them and actually wins. And they're like, what? Oh, those are great. We always laugh at those ones. But one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He's talking about a race. He's talking about uh, uh, winning the prize. He he's talking about living this life in such a way that's straining forward, not looking back. He's like, don't make the mistake of the runners and cyclists who are looking back at the race they've just been racing and they're not pressing ahead to the finish line as they should. See, Paul's saying, don't spend your life looking back at your achievements or your failures. Now, now Paul is, is, is encouraging us to do what he's done, which is forgetting the bad. Forget what, lays, what, what lay behind with all its failures. Uh, we just saw in verse 6 of chapter 3 where Paul says like, he was a persecutor of Christians. Paul was a zealous man who thought that following God meant actually persecuting people who believed differently than him. He believed this to his core. And, 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 and he talks about this. And in other places in the scriptures, in light of things like that, he's called himself the worst of all sinners. He's the worst sinner he knows. He's also said that he's the least of the apostles. But, but Paul doesn't wallow in the sins of his past. Why? because he knows that he's been forgiven. So he says things like, well, he says, I'm the worst of the apostles. He also says in other places, like, I work harder than all of them. So he has this great gratitude for what Jesus has done in his life, essentially forgiveness for all the sins in his past. And that is cause for him to look forward and to strive and to press on. He, he knows he's saved by grace. Look, I, I know as, as a pastor in this place 
that many of you struggle with getting over the sins of your past. And I know that what that can do is if we don't get over them, uh, what we do is we continue to relive them in ways that plague us down with guilt and shame, and that's our general disposition about ourselves. I empathize with you because we are all sinners and we have made grave errors in our lives that not only are sins before God, but that have hurt other people. And there, there, there's a genuine sorrow to have about those things. But there is also the, the, the way that the gospel works itself out in that, which is it's okay to look back and have a sorrow about those things, but we ought to look back and know we're forgiven of those things. What I find often happens is, is, is there's many of us in the Christian life that struggle to believe God. And, 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 and we, we do this without thinking this way, but what we often do is we, we place ourselves as more righteous than God. Okay, God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. None of us are more holy than God. God is a holy God who had a perfect plan to pay the penalty for our sins, which was to send his son Jesus to save you from them, to pay the penalty for them. And you have been forgiven. Are you in Christ? Do you follow Jesus? Your sins have been forgiven. You don't need to live today because of the past in shame and guilt. You get to live in freedom, peace, joy, gratitude. There's this incredible story in multiple places in the Gospels, but in Luke 7 specifically, um, we see that there's, uh, there's this Pharisee who invites Jesus over to his place for a meal. And so they're all reclining at this Pharisee's house around the table eating. And this woman busts in to the room who had heard that Jesus was there. And she goes up to Jesus and she anoints Jesus' head with ointment and his feet with ointment. But by the time she's seen Jesus, she's burst into tears. And now tears are flowing and also falling onto Jesus' feet. And with this ointment and her hair, she's wiping them. And a lot of the guys in the room are horrified at this scene and they're saying or they're thinking, what's Jesus doing? Why is he allowing this? Does he know who she is? That's a great sinner, that lady. And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. And he looks at them and he says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. This woman has been forgiven much and so she loves much. And he's actually indicting the room because they haven't anointed, they haven't washed his feet, right? They haven't, he, the Pharisee hasn't actually been a good host. And he's indicting them. The people who think they've been forgiven little, love little. This woman knows she's been forgiven much and it's turned into beautiful worship, he says. And then he looks at the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What Jesus does in this scenario is he pronounces the gospel upon this woman. He says to her precisely what he says to every person who gives their life to Jesus. Your sins, forgiven. Your faith in the gospel, in Jesus, has saved you. And now you can live in peace. That pronouncement on that sinful woman is a pronouncement upon you. Many of you are not as bad of sinners as that woman was. Most of us, maybe, maybe all of us, aren't as bad 
a person as the Apostle Paul was before his conversion. But they knew who they were in Christ, forgiven, saved, and they had peace. That same offer is given to you. That same pronouncement is put over you by Jesus. But Paul doesn't just forget his failures, his sin. He also means forgetting his achievements. We, we just looked last week at his, his boast. You know, you think you're righteous? I am more. And, and he listed all the ways in which he lived this righteous, upright life. And he eventually realized that none of that merited him righteousness before God, but what did was Jesus alone. But he had also placed his faith in Jesus. And so he could kind of rest on that, no? He could, he could rest on his achievements of the past. Not only that, um, he's also roughly 30 years into faith at this point. He's a couple years away from death. He's in prison at this moment. He's 30 years into faith in Jesus, and he was the greatest missionary ever. To that point, he had planted roughly 14 churches in those 30 years. But not only that, the churches he had planted had already been about planting churches. That's what the church is supposed to do, by the way. And so this church in Ephesus, for example, from what I understand, the only church that Paul actually planted in Asia, but here's the thing, the church in Ephesus planted churches all over Asia, so much so that it was said every person in Asia had heard the gospel. Don't you think if there's a person who could rest on their past achievements, it's Paul? Christian for 30 years, planted 14 churches. Those churches planted churches. All of Asia heard in if there's a person who could rest on their laurels, you'd think it would be him. Listen, have you ever been around people in the church who talk about the glory days of church? Oh. Well, I remember when we did this and we also did this. I look at you guys today and I think, oh, because when we were there that young, this is what we were doing. What are you doing now? Well, nothing. But when we were your age, we did all of this compared to what you're doing. What are you doing now? Nothing. What? See, the, the problem about not only forgetting our failures, but also not forgetting our achievements is that we just, we rest easy. Well, I served Jesus then. Uh-huh. Again, this is just what I love about the Apostle Paul. He's 30 years in. He's achieved more than we could dream of achieving in ministry. And what does he say? I press on every day. I strive to know Jesus more. I'm hungry for Christ. I want to serve him today and tomorrow. See, what he does is he forgets his past failures knowing he's been forgiven. And so he can live in the moment. And he forgets his achievements of the past so he can be about presently what Jesus wants to do through him today and tomorrow. This is incredibly important. We are meant to press on daily with Jesus, all of us. Paul's like, I haven't arrived. I'm still striving. And we ought to be about that too. That's how we ought to see our past is our past. But then we also look and see that our future is now. I say it that way because of the language of the text. He says, I press on to make it my own. One thing I do, straining forward to what lies ahead. He says again, I press on toward the goal of the prize, which is future. 
of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, meaning this future vision that I have affects how I am living today. He goes on in verse 16, let us hold true to what we have attained. He is, there's all this present language wrapped up in future language. Now, I just want to clarify, define some things for us in the text. When Paul speaks of the goal, this is what he's saying. He's talking about the full knowledge of Jesus and full likeness to Jesus. I press on towards the goal. What's the goal? Full knowledge of Jesus and likeness of Jesus. That's where I'm, that's where I'm looking to today. That's what, I'm, that, that's what I'm going about. That's my business today as a follower of Jesus. And when he speaks of the prize, he, he's speaking of being with Jesus and like Jesus in heaven. So he's striving after the goal for that ultimate prize, which is being like Jesus and with Jesus in heaven. One commentator, one commentator defined uh, the terms this way. When he speaks of the goal, he's talking about the object of human striving. We talked about this a few weeks back, the idea of sanctification, which is that we work out what Jesus has and continues to work in in our lives. So the goal is kind of this, the object of our human striving, this gospel-driven effort that look at what Christ has done for me. Me, I'm going to go about living for him. And the prize is the gift of God's sovereign grace. It's nothing we merit on our own. It's something that he graciously gives us as a gift. And so he's talking here and he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That is a gorgeous verse, verse 12. This is pure gospel motivation through and through from Paul. What he's saying is that he had encountered Jesus and Jesus had captured his heart. His motivation in life is to know and love and serve Jesus. And he's inviting the Philippians and essentially he's also inviting all of us. Let this be our motivation as well. We press on to make it our own because Jesus has made, it, made us his own. That's what the Christian life is about. And he goes on and says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. One thing I do. Do you see the precise, singular focus of Paul's life? One thing I do. One thing I do. I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. Paul's singular aim is to pursue a greater knowledge of Jesus. He's straining. Do you hear it in the language? Straining to know Jesus more. What's your one thing? Paul's like, here's my one thing. Here's my one thing, knowing Jesus more. What's your one thing? Like, like if, if the people closest to you, the people closest to you were to say, hey, what's, his, what's, what's Matt's one thing? What's your one thing in life? What would they say it is? That's a scary lunch conversation today, Hey. Ask each other, what's your one thing? And then listen to the answer, people. Listen to the answer. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, like my wife and unlike me. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. 
He goes on, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Now, now I'm asking you, what's the one thing in your life with the obvious answer that's supposed to be, well, Jesus pursuing Christ is the one thing in my life. But we're, we're left to kind of go, okay, but what if it isn't? What if it isn't? What, what do I do? It seems so big, so grand, almost unattainable. How do I change the posture of my life? I just want to go simple this morning. Let me ask you this question, a helpful next steps question. What one change could you make in your life, in your routine, in order to pursue the one thing that matters most? Like, let's not try and change everything. We'll probably fail. It's like a New Year's resolution. It's going to go bad by January 4th. We're like, well, I tried to change everything about my life, and that was too daunting. No, but what's one thing? Something I've been doing in recent weeks is I haven't been um, making beside my bed the place where my phone charges at night. I've, I've been putting my, my phone to bed before I go to bed. It is quite a tuck-in process, uh, actually. Uh, but, but I've started to actually put my, charge my phone in the kitchen downstairs. I put it there. I put it to bed, and then I go to bed. And you know what's been happening lately? Reaching over and grabbing my phone hasn't been the thing that I've been doing first thing in the morning lately. It's been giving me an opportunity to not make the phone the first thing, but the scripture's the first thing, a prayer life the first thing. Getting out of my bed and not looking to news, texts, social media interactions, but making the very first thing saying, Jesus, this day is yours today. Help me, work through me, use me please, forgive me. Is one thing I'm trying to change right now. What's one thing that you could change in your life and routine in order to pursue the one thing that matters most? Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so close and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So let me state it in, in this phrasing. What sin or what habit, what activity, it might not even be sinful, but what could you throw off in order to pursue the one thing that matters most? What's one, one tweak of your routine? What's one change you could make in your life in order to make the one thing that matters most the one thing that matters most? And, and what's one sin or one habit in your life that, that you can throw off so that you can pursue the one thing that matters most? Such wisdom from Paul here. Oh, may we be like him, straining for Jesus every day, making the, the one thing the one thing. He also goes on, though. Again, he, he, it's, it's everywhere. He's going everywhere in this text. He goes on in verse 17 to say, Brothers, sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What he's talking about here is spiritual mentorship or discipling. Be discipled by others, he's saying. And, and what we see in this text is that we are to pursue good examples to emulate, and then we're also going to see that there are bad examples that we should avoid. So first, um, let's look at what Paul is saying. I've always found it strange when Paul says, imitate me, right? Because I, I don't know why, but I've always interpreted that as like, watch and learn, everybody, watch and learn, you know? And I don't know why I do that. That probably says something about me. But in other places, Paul writes things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And you're thinking like, wow, that's, that's bold. I don't think I would say that. 
It's always kind of felt weird to me, you know, but as I've studied this more, here's something I've come to see that makes sense. I mean, I said it already, Paul's the one who planted the church in Philippi. Um, Paul, Paul, Paul is striving to meet the qualifications of an elder, of a leader in, in a church context. In fact, he's the one who wrote the qualifications, actually. But it's actually even more simple than that. He's further on in his Christian life and maturity, right? Paul was already a believer when he showed up in Philippi, preached the gospel. The people came to Christ, and they began to follow him, and they became a little church, and they started to grow. Well, who's the mature Christian among them? Well, it's Paul. He, he was years into faith. He was years into Christ sanctifying, maturing his life. And so it's a natural thing to say, hey, follow me on this, you guys. Follow my pattern of living. And, and when, when the, the church in Philippi are already years in and Paul's, yes, even more years in, but essentially still what he's saying is when, he, when, when what he's doing emulates Jesus, follow that. Does it, Paul's not claiming, he's like, I haven't arrived he says that in this text, but, but when you see me emulating Jesus, emulate me. We all need good examples to emulate. We grow in our discipleship. We grow in our faithfulness and following Jesus when we are influenced by spiritual mentors, when we are discipled. Now, I, I, I will say podcasts and blogs, those are great. They are great. They can be great. And following your favorite Christian celebrity on social media, right? They're pithy statements. Okay, that sounds sarcastic. They, they, they can mentor you from afar. But nothing, nothing replaces being trained by living present examples. Because you can watch them. You, you can see them interact in scenarios. You can, um, they can hug you. <laughs> Uh, they, they, um, you can ask them questions and they'll respond. Look, for mature believers who have, what we should do is this. We, we, we should look for mature believers who have strengths in areas where we need training, where we need examples. So we make a, a couple of mistakes when, uh, first, what we, we're actually really misguided if we think we don't need the influence of other Christians in our lives. Now, I think we could all admit, okay, yeah, 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 we, it, it's a good thing that, that we would be influenced by other Christians in our lives, but practically, on the ground, many of us aren't. And it's extremely misguided to actually... I think deep down believe we don't really need other Christians. It's extremely misguided if we think we don't need the influence of other Christians in our lives. That's half the meaning of church right there. But, but also, even if we, we pick one mentor, and this is very popular, right? Pick one mentor, one person, would you disciple me? And we try and walk closely with them. I, I think even that's slightly misguided. It's a good thing. But, it, but, it, but it's, it's, it's not holistic enough. Because here's what we tend to do. Say I'm somebody who's really passionate about social justice. You know what typically happens? I look for someone to disciple me who what? Is really passionate about social justice. And maybe nailing it a little bit more than I am. So I want to be discipled by them. Why? So I can continue to grow in the... In, in, in the the, the sliver of passion of the Christian life that I have. But, but what that does is it leaves us with a pile of blind spots. Why? 
because we have one, one area of passion in our walk. We see someone who holds that as well, who's maybe further along, and we want to follow after them. And our blind spots only grow. So, so what is wise, I'm saying, and this is what Paul's saying because he's saying it um, in the plural, is that we should look for several mentors in the faith. Look for, if you feel like you don't know how to study the Bible, look for someone who's passionate about studying, studying the Bible. Like when you're talking with them and they're just speaking scripture back to you and you're like, I can't do that. They memorize the Bible. I wonder how they do that. Or they're pulling from this and they're applying it to my life from the Bible. Wow, they really, they really love the word and they really know the word and I'm lacking in that. Can I learn from you? How do you do that? Show me your routine. Can we do that together sometime? But you don't want to stop there. You also want to find people who, who pray in ways that inspire you. One of my favorite things at church and I mean this in the most wonderful way. I love praying with a few particular older ladies in our church. It's one of my favorite things because when I'm with them and we're praying in a group, I feel like the person who's like saying these, you know, statements, like praying the same old things the same ways and I'm kind of even judging my own prayers. I'm like, ah, and I know God hears them and he's gracious like that. But then I hear one of the old, my older sister saints in the church start to pray and I, it gets me like fired up. Like I, I am loving what I'm hearing and I even like peek an eye open, right? Like what? And they're smiling. It's like they're Moses who came down from the mountain after seeing God's glory. It's like their face is shining. They're smiling and they're praying these prayers like Jesus is right beside them, interacting with them. And I'm like, I love that. I want more of that. Can I just like sit and hear you pray? Because it's teaching me. It's growing me. So we want to find the people who, who you can tell, study the word. And we want to ask if we can come close. We want to find those people who pray bold prayers, honest prayers, faithful prayers, prayers in the presence of Jesus. And we just like, can I hang with you? Could we pray together sometimes? We want to find people. And look, you don't need to be the most brilliant theologian. This is, this is the thing. You might want to look at some, in at somebody who doesn't seem to be a brilliant theologian at all. But when you look at the way they love their wife, it's like they're imaging the gospel in their marriage. It's just like, man, when it comes to marriage, I love how you love your wife. I love how you love your husband. Like, I just need to be around you. Maybe you haven't had those great examples. Find those great examples. Do, do lunch once a week or something with great examples. Bring your disagreements in your marriage to them, right? Whatever it is, like find them, hang out with them. When you see people parenting their children in like a way that's like, wow, that's the gospel. Man, that seem, you parent in a way that seems to be like Jesus commands. Let them model, hang out with them. Be like, does your family want to come over for lunch? And if we're sitting in the corner just taking notes as we observe you, don't find it weird. We're learning from you. You're discipling us. Like, but, but what I'm trying to say is grab all of those. That's, that's church family, right? That's not the solo Christian life, and that's not even the one disciple kind of making life. It's the disciplers. It's, it's, it's doing this thing together. 
But Paul also gives a very strong warning when he says in verse 18, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears. This, this hurts Paul, this pains Paul, these people who walk as enemies of the cross so much that it brings him to tears. But he says of them, their end's destruction, their God is their belly and they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. See, these enemies of the cross are most likely the Judaizers we talked about last week that Paul mentioned earlier in the chapter. Whoever they are, here's what's going on. They appear to be people who make some sort of profession of faith, but in reality oppose the gospel. Here's the scary reality. They're those inside the church, but who are outside of the Christian faith. What he shares is really the antithesis of Christian holiness. The opposite of, here's what they're doing. Their end is destruction, meaning their profession is false and fake, and so destruction is their end. Judgment will come in their lives. Their God is their belly. In other words, their motivation is to please self. It's those who elevate their own desires to the level of divine authority in their own lives. It's those who worship what feels right to them. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Simply put, they show off about things that they should be ashamed about. They celebrate the very things that God is opposed to. And their minds are set on earthly things. See, the things they get excited about at the end of the day are all worldly things. It's not Jesus, it's not the cross, it's not the resurrection, it's not the kingdom of God that capture their hearts. It's the world that does And so just because they're in the church doesn't mean their lives are fixated on the right things and worthy of emulation. So so Paul is saying, look to those who are mature, right, who embody the fruit of the Spirit. You see it in them and pursue being discipled by them. Now, one last thing, we kind of need to look to the future just as this text is doing. Oliver Wendell Holmes famously said, some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. You ever heard that line? Some people are so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I want to say in our context, that's wrong. I disagree. In our context, that's wrong. Because I don't know that many of us think about heaven at all. I think actually that some people are so earthly minded that they're of no heavenly good. But what we are to see in this text is that our future is secure. Verse 20 says our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, the Philippian Christians had two citizenships. As a colony of Rome, they had Roman citizenship, where Caesar ruled his vast empire. And as Christians, they had their true and greater citizenship, which was in heaven, where Jesus was ruling the universe, an infinitely greater king ruling an infinitely greater cosmic capital. See, as citizens of heaven... The Christian has this eternal hope in Jesus. One, that you will be with him. And two, that you will be like him. 
Paul in this text in the Bible and many other places tell us that Jesus rose and is alive. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, believers can have perfect confidence in life with Jesus beyond the grave. Jesus said in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. See, the thing about our citizenship in heaven is that we will be with Jesus. But what this text also tells us is that we will be like Jesus. Because Jesus was transformed, you, Christian, will be transformed. Jesus' crucified body became a glorified, resurrected body three days later. And our mortal bodies will be transformed to be like his. This is an incredible picture of the future. No more broken bodies. No more bodies riddled with cancer. No more bodies plagued with depression. Because Jesus' crucified body became a glorified body. And when he comes again, we will be made like him. Is that not an incredible hope? 1 John 3 says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. James Montgomery Boyce, the great 20th century preacher in Philadelphia wrote, apart from the resurrection of Jesus himself, there are only three resurrections recorded in the four gospels. The resurrection of a widow's son, the resurrection of the daughter of Jairus, and the resurrection of Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus. Listen to this. Each began in mourning and sorrow. Each ended in exuberant joy. Man, death, mourning, sorrow, yes. But with Jesus, each ends in exuberant joy. He goes on, what made the difference? Nothing but the coming of Jesus. Jesus said of himself, I am the life, and where life meets death, death is vanquished. Death was vanquished, and it will be abolished forever for us when Jesus Christ returns. This is the great Christian hope. In a decisive moment, our sinful nature will be eradicated, our bodies will be glorified, and our souls will be made fully into the likeness of Jesus. The very thing we spend our lives striving for, pursuing upon Christ's return, will be made complete in him. If you name Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he's also your king, and you are a citizen of a higher kingdom, this world is not your home. That is the, the grand Christian perspective, and that should fill you with courage and peace and hope. Max Lucado is a great Christian writer, and he wrote, I was flying home to San Antonio one evening, and as the wheels of the plane hit the runway, all through the plane, you could hear the unfastening of seatbelts. A voice came over the intercom saying, please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened until the plane has come to a complete stop. He goes on, no one paid attention and people were opening the overhead compartments, getting their stuff out. I asked myself, why are they so anxious to get off this plane? And the answer came quickly, recycle there. No, here's what he wrote. <laughs> they were home. They were home and they wanted to see the people they love. 
It dawned on me that the flight attendants didn't have to pull anyone out of their seats who might want to stay on the plane for a few more hours because they were home and wanted to get off that plane. Then I asked myself, why do we Christians hold so fast to our seats in this world? Why aren't we as anxious as these people to get off this crazy world when in fact, we're not home yet either? Oh, those people that are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Nah. Oh, those Christians who are so earthly minded, they're of no heavenly good. So earthly minded that when trials come, they don't know what to do with them. They're lost, they're frantic. We're not home yet. But here's the beauty of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus lives, so you will live. Jesus' body was transformed, and yours will be too. And in his love, nobody can snatch that from you. No scenario in this world, on this plane, this tube of recycled air can take that from you. You've got Jesus. You've got hope secure in what is to come in glory. I spent this last week thinking a lot about heaven, more than I usually do, just preparing for this. And it brought me so much comfort. And it brought me so much excitement that I just thought to myself, I need to dwell on this more. I need to dwell on the whole Christian story more. I mean, I need my, my, my Christian perspective tweaked here. I gotta remember the end of the story every day so that I can live just pressing in to Jesus. Set your gaze on Jesus and on your citizenship in heaven. Let's just summarize where we've been. Your past, it's forgiven. In the present, right now, run the race. Strive to know Jesus more and run it with others. In your future, it's secure and it's glorious. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, uh, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of clear picture of heaven. And so it leaves us wondering, and even this week, Lord, it's left me dreaming, what's it gonna be like? My mom, who's facing terminal illness, was out this last week and we just sat dreaming together, what's heaven gonna be like? I got to talk with people in the foyer this morning who are facing death in the face. We get to think really deeply about next steps, what's coming. And Jesus, when we look to you and the promise of the gospel, it's all good, like it's all good. So I praise you for that. Jesus, I'm so grateful for the gospel that, 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 that our past is forgiven in, in Jesus. I'm grateful that your forgiveness is so grand, the gospel is so good that it, it just stirs in us as we dwell on it, this gospel-driven effort where we just long to strive with our lives for the one thing that matters, knowing you more, becoming like you more, and our future's secure, and our future is glorious, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.